When September 1st, 1851, 1858 rather, the SS Austria set sail from Hamburg, Germany to New York City, carrying about 542 passengers. But on September 13th, there was a fire that started on the deck that spread rapidly throughout the ship, and the 542 passengers had to decide between the flames or jumping overboard in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Sadly, only 89 of the 542 passengers survived. It is uh, one of the deadliest maritime disasters of the 19th century. When the survivors arrived in New York, there was one man that was frantically interviewing and talking to the survivors to try to figure out if he could figure uh, what happened to his wife and his son who were on board. One of the survivors said he thought he remembered the man's wife, and when the man produced a picture, the man said to him, that is the very woman. And God bless you, my dear sir, for it was she that organized a prayer meeting on board in which my soul was saved. How do we live boldly as Christians? Like this woman, who chose not to just relax and kick back on her transatlantic cruise, but rather to start a prayer meeting that as many people might hear the gospel as possible, and many of whom were saved before they perished in that disaster. If we're honest, we'd probably all say that we struggle with boldness at times as Christians. We can probably all remember a time when we failed to say something or do something that needed to be said or done. So one thing seems clear. We as Christians need help in this area. We need help when it comes to boldness as Christians. But what is boldness? We need a definition, a working definition of Christian boldness before we dive in and we see what boldness looks like in this passage. Well, my definition of Christian boldness that we see in this passage is this. Christian boldness is lovingly and tactfully saying what needs to be said in the power of Christ for the glory of God. Christian boldness is lovingly and tactfully saying what needs to be said in the power of Christ for the glory of God. So this morning we're going to look at six points as we walk through this incredible story in Acts 4. First we're going to look at the difficulty of boldness, then the details of boldness, the source of boldness, the effects of boldness, the means of boldness, and finally the end of boldness. So first the difficulty of boldness. The difficulty of boldness is boldness often leads to challenging circumstances for us as Christians, right? In verses 1 through 3, we see in this passage, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them. Right? So the first thing that we see in this passage is that though many things could lead to persecution for us as Christians, it seems as if speaking is the greatest offense. And so speaking is the greatest primary action of Christian boldness. And it's often been said that we should preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. And oftentimes that uh, quote is attributed to Augustine. Augustine never said it, 
But no matter where you find, whatever book you find that quote in, the Bible is not one of them. The Bible is very clear that we must speak as Christians. Right? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we must speak. But one thing that scripture does clearly teach is that as we proclaim the gospel, it must be accompanied by lives that are godly and loving. So we must speak, but we also must live lives that are godly and loving to testify to the validity of the gospel. In other words, good works must accompany our words, but they cannot replace them. Good works must accompany our words, but they cannot replace them. But it's easy to see why we would want to replace speaking boldly with just living loving lives, right? Just living godly lives. I mean, speaking the truth of the gospel is difficult. It's challenging. It brings persecutions. Uh, persecution. People are often offended by people speaking boldly, even when it's done gently, even when it's done well. It's offensive to speak boldly. But why? If the gospel is good news, why is it so offensive? Why does it bring persecution when Christians speak boldly? Well, a few reasons. One, the exclusivity of the gospel is offensive. Most people don't have a problem if you're a Christian, but if you tell other people that they need to be a Christian also, that's offensive. It comes across as arrogant or prideful that Christians would say every other worldview is wrong except Christianity. But we believe that there is only one true and living God. And all of us are going to be accountable one day. That is what the Bible teaches. And so really what could be more unloving for us as Christians not to share that truth with other people? How could we call ourselves loving and not share the truth of the gospel with others? It's true that keeping our mouths shut might keep us out of trouble. But it also keeps people out of heaven. We must speak as Christians. A Christian can't call themselves loving and not share the gospel with others. And we can't fear people or what they're going to think about us, what they're going to say about us or call us. But the opposite of fearing others isn't not caring about others. The opposite of fearing people isn't to say, well, I don't really care. I'm just going to say whatever. No, the opposite of fearing others is actually being freed from what they think so that we can truly love them by speaking the truth of the gospel to them. But the second reason why the gospel and speaking boldly is offensive is that speaking the truth boldly pushes people off of their core beliefs. Right, look at this passage. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, and here are the disciples proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It was pushing the Sadducees off of their core beliefs, and that was offensive. And that's scary. And we have to realize that as good as the gospel is, and as great, as, uh, great a news as it is, it is still scary that for many people, what it means to accept the gospel is that vast amounts of their worldview and their world needs to change. And we as Christians should have compassion on folks as we share the gospel for that reason. I think Francis Schaeffer hit the nail on the head when he gives us this warning about doing evangelism. This is what he says. 
He writes, I need to remind myself constantly that this is not a game I am playing. If I begin to enjoy it as a kind of intellectual exercise, then I am cruel and can expect no real spiritual results. As I push the man off his false balance, he must be able to feel that I care for him. Otherwise, I will end up only destroying him. And the cruelty and ugliness of it all will destroy me as well. We must speak the gospel, but we must do so compassionately as well, knowing what this means for people who haven't believed the gospel. But third, the gospel simply convicts us. Who wants to hear that they are sinful and in desperate need of a savior? They need to be saved, and that is the gospel. We have sinned against God and deserve alienation from him, and yet he has sent his son, Jesus, to become man and to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. It's good news, but it means that we must admit that we're sinners. The gospel must wound us first before it heals, and that is offensive. It stings our pride, and some will respond in anger. And so speaking the the gospel boldly can offend, which leads to persecution, alienation from loved ones and family members. It can lead to awkwardness in the workplace. And that's what makes boldness so difficult. But sometimes we're afraid to be bold because we just don't know what it looks like. What does it mean for a Christian to speak boldly and do that well? Well, that's our next point. The details of boldness. The apostles in this passage are put on the spot and tell, and and then they're asked to tell everybody why, what power they healed this man. And if we're put on the spot, we should do the same. We should also boldly proclaim what the gospel is. But if we're honest, most of our opportunities to be bold don't take this form. Right? I'm sure maybe some of you this has happened, but probably rarely does your boss call you into the his office or the workplace and say, we'd like you to just boldly proclaim what you believe for the entire workplace right here and we're just going to listen. I mean, if that happened, awesome. But for the most part, we as Christians don't get opportunities like this. More often, we are constantly having to seek opportunities where we can proclaim the gospel boldly. And that takes wisdom. It takes tact. It takes skill. We read in 1 Peter 3.15 that we as Christians are to give a defense Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. But Peter writes that this should be done with gentleness and respect. So we should be gentle. We should be respectful as we seek opportunities to share the gospel boldly. That's interesting. But it also should be done in love. Think of Romans 9 where Paul says that he could wish that he were cut off from Christ if it meant more Israelites believing the gospel. I mean, what immense love for the people he was trying to share the gospel with. Some Christians who consider themselves bold uh, boast that they just tell it how it is. I just tell it how it is. I don't really care what people think. You know, I'm just going to keep it real. That's what they say. But actually, those Christians more likely keep non-Christians away is what they do than keep it real. Boldness does not mean brashness. We should be gentle and respectful And we should have immense love for the people that we're sharing the gospel with. Proverbs 16, 18 says, 
There is one whose words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Imagine you go in for a surgery, and in walks the surgeon, and he's wearing an apron covered with blood, and he's holding a sword. As he says, trust me, this is for your good. You're going to be, I mean, you're not, you're not going down easy on that operating table. And that is like a Christian who shares the gospel boldly, but with words like sword thrusts. The tongue of the wise brings healing. We should be gentle, respectful. But boldness in Christian evangelism also is tactful. It's wise. Jesus said that we should be gentle as doves, but shrewd as serpents. He calls us fishers of men. Now, a lot goes into fishing. There's a lot in that analogy, right? You can't just go out and drop a hook in the middle of a lake for an hour at high noon and say, I fished, didn't catch a thing, but I did it. Not exactly. There's a lot. You've got to think about what time of year is it? What time of day is it? What, are the, what kind of fish are you catching? What do they bite? How long do you go? All of those things. If you really want to fish wisely and actually want to catch something, and the same is true with evangelism. What scares people away? How can we be tactful? How do we present the gospel well and effectively. John Stott said that if he had an hour with someone who wasn't a Christian on their deathbed, he would first listen for 40 minutes, understand who they are, what is their worldview. As one pastor said, tell me about the Jesus you've rejected. Maybe I don't believe in that Jesus either. John Stott said he would listen to people and then take the last 15 minutes to present the gospel as effectively as possible with them and then give them time to respond. And similarly, I think we should take time with someone to say, how much time do I have with this person to ask them questions, learn about who they are, what do they believe, and then share the gospel with them as effectively as possible. I think for some examples of this kind of evangelism that's gentle, respectful, and yet loving and tactful, uh, J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, is a great example. C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, another good example. Um, Or recently, Tim Keller did a talk at the British Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast uh, several years ago. Uh, These are just a few good examples of, I think, this kind of wise, tactful, loving, and yet gentle and respectful boldness. But when it comes time to actually speak and proclaim the gospel boldly, what do we say? What do we do? And Peter's bold confession in verses 8 through 12 is extremely instructive for us in that regard. First, We should be prepared to give a defense, right? Peter wrote those words in 1 Peter 3.15, and clearly Peter practiced what he preached. Peter knew his doctrine. He was ready to articulate it clearly, and he did. He made the most of that opportunity. When I was in college, someone challenged me to be able to share the gospel in three minutes or less using Scripture. And that's a challenge I throw out to you. Any Christian can do it. And just doing that has not only helped me know the gospel more deeply with Scripture, but it's also enabled me to share the gospel more effectively with other people. But we should also know the people that we're sharing the gospel with, similar to just what we just talked about. And there's an endless resource, uh, endless resources for us as Christians to engage with any number of non-Christian worldviews. A phenomenal little resource for this is a book called False Teaching by Ligonier Ministries, You could probably read it in several sittings, and they basically give an overview of every major cult, false religion, and worldview, as well as how to share the gospel with those people. Because that's a great little resource that you can get to help yourself uh, be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, regardless of who you're talking to. 
But the second thing we learn from Peter's speech, besides to be prepared to give a defense, is that we must trust the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in Matthew 10, 19, told his disciples not to worry about what they would say, for in that time when they were questioned, he would send the Holy Spirit to give them the words to say, and clearly this is one of those instances. Look at verse 8 in chapter 4. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Right, so Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. He's relying on the Spirit, and he makes the most of this opportunity. I mean, Peter is simply asked by what power that they healed this man. And these rulers and the Sadducees get way more than they bargained for. They just ask one question, but Peter gets the whole, the whole gospel in there. Peter was running a Joseph A. Bank special that day. Ask one question, get five answers free. I mean, he, he gets everything in there. He's talking about Jesus, whom you crucified, who rose from the dead. He's the cornerstone. He did this miracle, and there is salvation in no other name. He gets everything in there. He makes the most of his opportunity. And he's relying on the Holy Spirit. And you and I must also pray. We must also rely on the Holy Spirit. So that when someone asks us, hey, how do you have such hope in suffering? Or hey, why do you, why do you treat that person who's such a jerk so kindly? We also being filled with the Holy Spirit, can make the most of that opportunity. But the last thing that we learn from Peter's speech about how to be bold is that we must proclaim Christ. Nothing about Peter's actions in verses 5 through 12 suggests that words are optional, right? We must speak words. And when we do speak words, our words should specifically make Christ known. Peter takes no glory for himself whatsoever in the healing of this man. And similarly, we should give all the glory to Christ. We should lift him up and just say, it's it's Jesus. Trust me. You might be trying to compliment me, but you really want to compliment Jesus. It is all him. That's what Peter does, and that's what we also must do. But we also have to remember that even when Christians do everything right, even when we're bold, but we're loving, and we're gentle, and we're respectful, and we're tactful, and all those things, just like the disciples were, persecution will still come. Right? The disciples, Peter and John, proclaim boldly and do everything that we're talking about doing, and yet they're still arrested. Eventually, Peter and John will die for speaking the gospel boldly. And yet, even when Christians die for the gospel, they are still victorious. Persecution and death don't destroy the gospel we proclaim. They actually amplify it. When Christians boldly proclaim the gospel, especially in the face of suffering and persecution, it only causes our message to echo on even louder in the hearts of our hearers long after we're gone. Persecution and suffering amplifies the gospel. I mean, look at verse 4. The apostles are arrested and put in jail, and yet it says, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The disciples are arrested, they're persecuted, eventually they'll be killed, but the gospel goes on. It's like a train that cannot be stopped. In baseball, there's a pitcher 
uh, called a closer. He's typically the best pitcher on a team out of their bullpen, and their only job is to come in in a close game if their team is up by a small amount of runs and close the game by getting the last three outs. And they're the best pitcher because they don't want to give up any base runners, any runs, or anything like that and lose this game that they almost had put away. And probably the best closer in baseball history is a guy named Mariano Rivera for the New York Yankees from the mid-90s to about 2013 or so. And Mariano Rivera had one pitch. It was a fastball that was a cutting fastball that as he threw it, it sort of ran and tailed in, interestingly, toward right-handed hitters. So when a right-handed hitter went to hit it, he thought he was going to hit it perfectly, and then it moved, and it would jam his bat or break his bat or break fingers. And Mariano Rivera would terrify hitters. They knew exactly what he was going to throw. They knew the pitch that was coming, and they couldn't stop it. They couldn't hit it. One player said that, he said, you start thinking about Mariano Rivera on the plane ride to New York. And this depression starts setting in because you know what he's going to throw. You're going to have to face him and you don't know what to do. You know, we should have confidence that even in persecution, even in death, Satan can try to slow the spread of the gospel, but he cannot stop it. He can kill believers, but they rise again in Christ. He can try to silence our witness, but our message only echoes on louder in the hearts of our hearers, even in death and persecution. Satan is on one long, depressing flight, straight to the second coming of Christ, and Jesus is the best closer of all time. Satan's destiny is secure, and by God's grace, so is ours. We will reign with him. The Lord is doing his work, and he invites us into it, amazingly. And yet boldness is required. But thankfully, he equips us for that. We've talked about the difficulty of boldness, why it's hard. And we've talked about the details, what does it look like. But where do we get the power and the courage to be bold? We're going to look at that now in the next point, the source of our boldness. In verse 13, we read this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The rulers are astonished at the disciples' boldness. The disciples were not intellectually elite. They were not impressive orators or teachers, and yet they just communicated powerfully, effectively, and boldly. And the rulers are left scratching their head thinking, how does this happen? How did they just do that? And they answer their own question. Jesus. Only Jesus could save them. Only Jesus could transform them like this. Only Jesus could give them the words to say. Only Jesus could heal this man like he did in this passage, and only Jesus could give them the ability to speak so clearly and boldly. As Jesus said in John 15, we can do nothing apart from him. We don't need an MDiv or other degrees or special gifting to be fruitful and effective for God's kingdom. All we need is Jesus. That is all you need 
to be highly fruitful and effective for God and his kingdom is Jesus. And that's why this sermon isn't entitled Living Boldly for Christ. It's Living Boldly in Christ. He is the source of our boldness. But notice that the rulers recognize on their own that the disciples had been with Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? It was apparent. It was obvious that the disciples, that Peter and John, had been with Jesus. You can't fake being with Jesus. It's obvious. It's apparent when you are and when you aren't with Jesus. When you are with Jesus, you are transformed. And it's recognizable to others. When we spend time with Christ, we are usually more kind and patient and gracious with others. And long term, we are slowly but surely being conformed into the image of Christ when we spend time regularly with him. And clearly being with Christ leads to boldness for Christ. And so here's the million dollar question. How are we with Jesus in the way that Peter and John were? Because maybe you're thinking like, okay, Mike, I'm a Christian, but like, tell, tell me about this kind of with Jesus. I, I want the boldness that Peter and John had. How were they with Jesus? So how are we with Jesus the way Peter and John were that, that will fill us with boldness? Easy. We listen, we pray, and we obey. Listen, pray, and obey. We must listen to Christ. The disciples were with Jesus every day for, for three years. They watched him. And they listened to him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when the mountain is enveloped by a cloud, the Father speaks and says, this is my son. Listen to him. And Peter, James, and John heeded that warning as well as the other disciples. And we must listen to Jesus. And the main way we do that is by reading his word. And not just reading it, but studying it. Hearing it preached. Memorizing it. Meditating on it. Applying it in our lives. We must listen to Jesus. And we can't do this every once in a while. You can't just have one big meal to last you the whole week. You need regular meals to sustain you physically. And we need regular time in front of God's word to sustain us spiritually. But we must also pray. We listen to Christ, but we also pray. If God's word is him speaking to us, prayer is us speaking to God. It's a, and it's a, a crucial aspect of our communion with God, a vital aspect of our relationship with him. We will sooner thrive physically without breathing than thrive spiritually without praying. We must go to the Lord in prayer. In John 15, 7, which I quoted earlier, Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's an amazing promise. There's an old movie called Blank Check where a kid, a young kid, has a, a, a check made out to him. It's a blank check by this wealthy villain by accident. And the kid, wrongly, uh, fills out the check for a million dollars and cashes it and buys everything that you would think a kid would buy with a million dollars. It's just arcade games and a mansion with water slides everywhere and all this stuff. And I remember watching as a kid thinking, like, that's amazing. Like, I wish hope somebody would just give me a blank check. But how much, how much better is this kind of blank check that Jesus gives us? Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. But this is actually even better than a blank check, if you think about it. 
Because we can ask God for whatever we want, and we know that he is generous and we have access to him. He's the creator of all things. And yet at the same time, we know that he won't give us something that is ultimately not best for us. So we really can't lose. We can ask for whatever we wish, and we know that God is capable of doing all things and loves us and wants to give us good gifts. And yet at the same time, if it's something that would threaten us and harm us ultimately, he, he won't give it to us. We can't lose when we go to the Lord in prayer. As Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But lastly, we must obey. John says, uh, Jesus says in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Right there, there's a clear statement that God's love language is obedience. If you want to know, how do, I, how do I love God? How do I make God feel loved by me? It's obedience. It's reading his word and seeking to obey him. And John 14, 21 couldn't be more clear on that. Obedience is God's love language. A person who says that they love God but doesn't try to obey his word is an oxymoron. If we claim to be in him, we must walk as Jesus did. We don't get to participate in our justification. Right, we are saved once and for all by grace alone and Christ alone. But we do participate in our sanctification. We seek to put sin to death and to be more like Christ. And this demonstrates that we truly love him. So how are we with Jesus in the way that Peter and John were? We listen, we pray, and we obey. There was once a young lumberjack who applied to work for a logging crew. And the employer gave him an interview, and the young lumberjack fell the tree really quickly. The employer was impressed and said, all right, start Monday. And he started Monday, but then on Thursday, the employer came to him and said, hey, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. And the young lumberjack said, I, I don't understand. And the employer said, well, on Monday you were first in productivity, but by, by Wednesday you were dead last. And the young lumberjack said, I, I, I don't get it. I'm the first to get here. I'm the last to leave. And oftentimes I skip breaks. And sensing the young man's integrity, the employer said, have you been taking time to sharpen your axe? And the young lumberjack said, I've been too busy working to do that. Now, what an obvious mistake. But don't we do the same sometimes spiritually? Are you fervently trying to labor for God's kingdom with a dull axe? Jesus is the source of boldness. So we must be with him. And when we're with Jesus, it has several effects on us. And so let's look at that now, the effects of boldness. Obviously, one effect of being with Jesus is the ability to speak boldly for him. But when we do speak boldly, what are the results? What happens in our life and in the life of others? Well, first, as a result of the disciples being with and relying on Jesus, his power is displayed. In verses 14 through 16, we see that there's a man that's healed. And because of this man being healed, it actually silences their critics. There's this incredible miraculous power that is testified to the truth of the gospel that the disciples proclaim. And God still does that today. God silences the critics 
their critics by this miraculous power. And he still does that. He still does miracles to attest to the validity of the gospel. And so we might be thinking, well, that would be nice if God gave me, you know, miraculous powers as I'm sharing the gospel with my friends and family and coworkers. And so we might be asking, well, what is our healed man? What is, what is our healed person that silences our critics, that testifies to the truth and power of God in the gospel? Well, most often, the miracle that God performs that silences our critics is our own transformation. It's our own godliness and conduct. God backs up our message through our our godliness and our conduct. Through the hope we have. Through the joy we have, regardless of our circumstances. And through the unity we have as a church. Paul writes to Titus in Titus 2, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So that an opponent may be put to shame. Having nothing evil to say about us. And this is why it's important, as we said earlier, that even though good works can't replace our words, they must accompany them. Our godliness and our conduct silences opponents of the gospel. They won't be able to deny that, the God, that, that God has done a, a wonderful work in us through the gospel, through belief in him. But the second effect that boldness brings is that it compels us to speak about him. Look at verse 20. After the rulers warn Peter and John to not speak the gospel anymore, and they respond, well, it's, you have to decide whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. But then in verse 20, he says, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They couldn't stop. They literally couldn't hold it in. When we are truly with Jesus and we grasp the glory of the gospel and how we've been saved in our salvation, we can't hold it in. We have to tell someone. We have to share it with someone. One of my seminary professors told a story of a pastor he knew who was always exhorting his congregation to go and share the gospel because God commands us to do it. And that's true. But some did and most didn't. And then he decided to change his strategy. He decided he was going to focus on simply preaching the gospel clearly so that people would stand more and more in awe of the God who has rescued them and saved them. He decided he was going to have them stand in awe of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the most amazing thing happened. People started living in a missional way. They started sharing the gospel. They started telling other people about how they had been saved. You see, we talk about what we love. When we find something beautiful, we have to share it with others. Let me give you an example. No one has to tell Ron Hallbrooks to talk about Texas A&M. He cannot but speak of the things that he has heard and seen at Texas A&M. I think, in fact, all Aggies do, or maybe just people from Texas do. I think that might be the first thing you learn at Texas A&M is how to speak about Texas A&M. Because it's clearly something that they enjoy, that they loved. And I have to confess that I was probably boldest in evangelism as a young Christian before anybody even told me I had to share the gospel. The light of the gospel had shone in my heart 
And I had to share it with someone. I did it in the lunchroom. I did it during English class. I would tell anybody who would listen. And I still have an aspect of that today. But I want more. What about you? How bold are you in the gospel? Is the gospel like a fire shut up in your bones? Do you have to tell someone? When we're with Christ, he makes us godly. And it testifies to the validity of our gospel. And he compels us to share. And if we aren't growing in godliness, and if we don't on some level feel compelled to share the gospel, we might want to ask ourselves if we truly understand the gospel. Being with Jesus, beholding Christ and the gospel should grow us in Christ-likeness and should cause us to wonder at the gospel and want to tell others. But besides being with Jesus, there is one more means of growing in boldness as Christians. And we're going to look at that now. In our fifth point, the means of boldness. After the disciples are released, they return to their friends in the church, and their gut reaction is to pray. That's the first thing that they do. It says that they lifted their voices together in verse 24 and prayed to God. And this likely just means that one person prayed on behalf of the congregation. That's really what corporate prayer is, isn't it? One person praying on behalf of the entire congregation, and they immediately praise God for being all-powerful. Look at verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You know, parenthetically, God's power and sovereignty is the foundation for our boldness in evangelism. Imagine if Peter and John thought God was only moderately powerful or sovereign. Do you think they would have been as bold as they were? Do you think we will be more bold if we know clearly, if we have a clear understanding in our mind of how powerful God is? He is the one and only true living God who has created all things. God's power and sovereignty is the foundation for our boldness. But then in verse 25 through 28, they praise God in prayer for how Psalm 2, which they quote here, has been fulfilled by the rulers of the nations killing Jesus and now persecuting his servants. And then in verse 29 through 30, we come to the other means to grow in boldness. And that is prayer. In verse 29, the apostles pray for boldness. <clears throat> and they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, we might be thinking, really? Like Peter and John praying for boldness after this Incredible display of boldness. The Apostle Paul also in, in Ephesians 6.19 prays, asks for prayer that he would be bold in sharing the gospel. And I don't know about you, but the apostles, Peter and Paul, praying for boldness kind of seems like, I don't know, Warren Buffett asking for prayer for his finances. It's just like, you're, you're, you're going to be good. Like, was Paul only beaten like three times that week for the gospel? I mean, these were titans in terms of examples of boldness, and yet they wanted more boldness. The apostles prayed for boldness. And if Paul and Peter needed prayer for boldness, how much more do we? How much more do we? In 1858, there was this incredible prayer revival in New York City. 
And prayer meetings were started up throughout the entire city, and tens and tens of thousands of people attended these prayer meetings, so much so that they were often turned away. There just wasn't enough room in the churches and the uh, places, the gathering places where they were held. And amazing stories happened throughout the whole city and then throughout the country. Countless people came to Christ, people who had rejected the gospel for decades, wayward children, notorious criminals, the poor, the rich, you name it. Amazing. This was an amazing work of God's spirit and power. And the whole thing was started by one man who lived in New York City and was exceedingly burdened for the lost. And so he began to pray. He prayed fervently for the lost. And he prayed fervently the Lord would just show him what to do. That was his prayer. Lord, save the lost and just show me what can I do. And the Lord laid it on his heart to start a prayer meeting. And the rest was history. One man. There's a story in the time of the Reformation that someone hired a spy to follow Martin Luther around to see if he could find a way to destroy or discredit him. And Luther stopped at a hotel, and so the spy rented the adjacent, uh, adjacent room to Luther. And the spy came back to his employer the next day and said that Luther spent nearly the entire night in prayer. And then the spy despairingly said to his employer, I could never hope to conquer a man who prayed so fervently. Oh, that Satan would say that about us. I could never hope to conquer a man or a woman who prayed so fervently. How fervent are we in our prayer for the lost? Does it break our hearts? Do we go to the Lord urgently in prayer? How fervent are we in prayer for boldness? Man-powered works get man-sized results. God-powered works get God-sized results. And I don't think we need to ask which one we want. And in verse 31, we read that as they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, with boldness, and no doubt with a sense of God's glory and of God's power at what he had done. And that leads us to our last point, the end of boldness. The end of boldness is God's glory. In verse 4, we see that 5,000 people believed the gospel and came to worship and adore God for his wonderful salvation. In verse 21, we see that people were praising God for what he had done. We see Peter glorify Christ in his speech, giving him all the praise and honor. And in verse 23, the apostles and the church immediately praise God for granting Peter and John boldness. As Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty-six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And the same is true of boldness. Boldness is from him, boldness comes through him, and boldness leads to his glory. What a joy that we get to be bold and so be a part of glorifying Christ. We could just cast a little bit of light on Christ's glory. We can be one little pixel in a giant display of Christ's glory. What a joy, what a thrill that we get to be a part of that. 
But you know, there's going to be an end to boldness in another sense. There will actually be a day in heaven where there will be an end to boldness. In heaven, there will, there will be no boldness. There won't be a need for it. Now is the time for boldness. Now, this life that is a breath is our opportunity. This blink of an eye is our chance to live boldly in Christ for the good of others. We began with a story about the woman who boldly began a prayer meeting on board the SS Austria before it sank. Well, one of the survivors relayed to the husband what happened to his wife and son. The last he saw of his wife and son, they were standing as far as they could get from the flames. And when it became no longer endurable, he saw the wife with a calm, serene countenance, embraced the son, and then both committed themselves to a watery grave. The husband, of course, was heartbroken, but consoled to know that the last hours of his wife's life were spent in such loving devotion to the souls of others. One of the survivors who had become a Christian, another survivor who became a Christian, at that prayer meeting started by that woman was swimming in the water after the ship had sank. And another Christian nearby yelled out to him and asked him, friend, how do you feel in view of death? And the man replied, I'm perfectly happy. I can now rely on Jesus and I'm safe. And then looking up on the ship, he added, There stands the noble woman with her son's hand in hers to whom I owe all my hopes of salvation. For she it was that started up the prayer meetings. Well, I look forward to meeting this bold woman in heaven one day and her spiritual children and grandchildren. And in fact, in heaven, I hope to have spiritual children and grandchildren. People who came to faith because God used my imperfect attempts to share the gospel lovingly, tactfully, but boldly. And in that day, as we look back on this life, I hope to be able to tell those saints that perhaps I lost more battles than I won. But nonetheless, I fought and strove with boldness for Christ. What about you? As a friend of mine says, when everything is said and done, what will you have said? What will you have done? Will you have spiritual children And grandchildren one day? Let this year be the year that we are bold for Christ. Let 2022 be the year we look back for many years and say that was the year 
that I decided to be with Christ, to listen, pray, and obey, and to earnestly ask the Lord for boldness to live a life worthy of the gospel. And the reason that we can do this, the reason that we can be bold for Christ, is because Jesus boldly laid down his life for us. Have you ever considered the fact that in Scripture, everything that God does is easy except for our redemption? He creates the world, the universe, in six days by speaking. He sleeps on a cushion in the midst of a raging storm. He heals people by the thousands, no matter what the sickness or illness is. He raises people from the dead like that, sometimes not even being there with them. God does not fear man or nature. He created them. But like a diamond is the only thing hard enough to cut another diamond, the only thing that could cause God to fear would actually be facing his own justice and righteousness for sin. We don't see Jesus in agony in the midst of the storm or healing others. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus in agony. He's sweating drops of blood. He's staggering before the cup of wrath that he had to drink for our sins. Because of the justice, his own justice he had to face. As one hymn writer put it, many hands were made to wound him. None were interposed to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Jesus peered into the cup of justice we deserved to drink for our sins, and he was horrified. And then he bowed his head, and he boldly became obedient to death, even death on a cross, our cross. It's because Jesus boldly endured the cross for us that we can be bold for him. So love him. Be with him. The lover and savior of your soul and grow in boldness. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the lover of our soul. And it's because of your boldness that we can be bold. And so we pray, God, that you would please fill us with your power through your spirit and enable us to speak boldly. Help us to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done in the power of your spirit. And I pray that you would bring fruit from it. That, Lord, one day we might have many spiritual children and grandchildren sitting in this room with us, singing this final hymn together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.